I know that it's not normal for most people to go into work and deal with the child who's seven and suicidal. At the end of the day, like, I'm a fighter. I want to fight for other people. I don't feel fulfilled or I don't feel, like, good about myself unless I'm helping others. At the end of the day, like, someone has to be doing this. And they're going to hate me for it. They're going to yell. They're going to scream. But it has to be done. Today's episode is the journey of what it takes to be a social worker, but it's a journey that thematically we also closely relate to. Emma's story of fighting for something she so deeply believes in and facing the demons that so often come along with being in a chaotic and stressful job situation is far too relatable for so many of us. We talk about learning to overcome these challenges, what it takes to truly be your true self, how we can all be a part of supporting social workers, and what it takes to keep going on days when you simply want to quit. Episode 38 with Emma Offerman begins now. On July 24, 2019, you posted the image of a card that was written to you that said, Emma, words cannot express how grateful we are for all you've done for blank. You have exceeded our expectations and we're so sad that we're losing you as his case manager. You have been so diligent in fighting for him and persistent in the pursuit of his best interests. You are so good at what you do. Thank you for fighting for these kids and being the incredible person that you are. We are so very grateful. Signed, blank and blank. The caption you posted with this said, quote, I'm sharing this because my job being a social worker is not an easy one. I have a lot of bad days filled with teary eyes, feeling like nothing I do will ever be enough for these kids. But today a foster family gave me this farewell card and I will hold on to it forever. What did this card mean to you? Tell me the story behind this. That was one of my most difficult cases that um, I had actually too. So to get that, I think was even more rewarding than just one of the, the more casual cases. But that case was a young boy. He was born into the system. So I guess a little background of what I did to get that. So social work is such a broad term and there's social workers in all different as like I mean facets of life like you can find a social worker in a school in a hospital and a juvenile detention center like they're everywhere and in that instance I was working as a case manager um, in the child and family sector so like with Department of Children and Families and when a child is removed from a parent guardian due to different types of abuse neglect sexual abuse physical abuse they then enter the system. And my job was once they entered the system, they basically became my responsibility. And within that was, you know, finding them a placement, finding them a foster family, finding them either a relative or a friend, family friend that would be a safe environment for them to go. Um, And in that instance, this little boy, the mother um, I'd been working with for, for some time, because she had another child that was in foster care, and she was not doing um, what she needed to do to get her child back. She was using drugs um, frequently. She was not going to classes. She was not working on what she needed to. So therefore, when she gave birth to another little boy, that little boy had to enter foster care. He couldn't leave the hospital with his mom. And that actually was one of the most difficult things I think I ever dealt with in this job was this same child in the same case was I was there when the mother gave birth and I had to be the one to say, 
you can't leave with this baby. And it was one of those things that I didn't feel like I was prepared to deal with because I don't think anyone is prepared. I don't think I have a right to take anyone's child. I don't feel I am better than someone. Like it was this very weird moment of like, why Why do I have this power right now? Um, and it was really difficult. I, I mean, I hadn't been out of college that long. I was young. She was older. You know, I don't have children. It felt, it really was difficult for me. But after that child was removed, he was placed in this home throughout like the next little bit of working with this foster family that got him. Everything made sense. Like it made sense to me of why this child, why I had to be there at the hospital that day, why I had to make those decisions. This child is safe right now. Like every time I went there, he was smiling ear to ear. He was being so well taken care of. His foster parents did an amazing job. They loved him, loved him, loved him. And then it got to the point where the relationship with the mother and I, she became threatening. It became actually a dangerous situation. So I had to be removed from the case. And that is where that farewell card came into play as the foster parents gave that to me once I was removed from the case. And it was really difficult. But the good side of it was I got to pick who got to take over the case. And it was a good friend of mine. Um, so I was able to keep in touch and I still keep in touch with those foster parents to this day. And I actually found out about three weeks ago that they are going to be adopting him, which is huge. Um, it's been about two years of him in foster care. And the court finally decided that they would be able to adopt him. So he'll have a permanent home and just kind of everything kind of came full circle, I feel like, for him. And he's in a great place. And it's great to know that he will be cared for for the rest of his life. You know, you talked about having this, you know, ability or this power, if you will, right out of college to have to make this decision to separate a mother and a child. Is there ever a fear of like making the wrong decision or how are you able to deal with that decision making pressure? And it seems like you're just so passionate about it. I know we're going to get into the episode. I'm super excited to learn more about your heart for all this, but to, to, not see this as just a job, but but not to take this so personally that you lose sleep overnight. So what is that like for you making those decisions? So it definitely took me a while to figure it out. It was not this seamless transition of me coming out of college and then entering this position where all of a sudden I had a huge influence over people's lives, over kids, over adults. It was really difficult. And I can remember the first like probably two or three months of me in the job, I thought I was killing, you know, I, I was getting through the week, no issues, no tears. Everyone's like, you know, are you okay? Constantly asking me if I'm okay. You know, or how are you dealing with this? And I was like, I'm fine. Like, I feel fine. I don't feel any, I'm good. And then the weekend would come and I would cry and cry and cry. I had a boyfriend at the time. I would pick the craziest fights you've ever heard of. I mean, over anything I could think of, I would pick a fight. I would pick a fight with friends. I would do whatever I could to like bring up that emotion. And I was so unaware of what I was doing at first. And then like a couple months went by and it was every weekend. And I just like spent the entire weekend crying. And then I had a conversation with my mom actually. And she kind of brought to light, she said something like, you know, do you think this is the job? And I was like, what? Like, no, I, I would be upset during the week. I would be crying at night. Like, why would it be? And then I thought about it some more and it made so much sense that 
I was on just like going as fast as I could during the week. I didn't have a second to think about the decisions I was making, what was happening. I just, I made the decisions. I talked to my superiors. We went with it. Like that was it. But then it was like, as soon as the weekend came and I had a second to think or to like be alone, everything from that week would come crashing down. And it was all of that, like second guessing and, you know, is this child okay? And not being able to, you know, in the weekend, I didn't work weekend. So I kept my phone, my work phone off. And it was that constant, like, I I have to turn my phone on and check. I have to make sure this child's okay. Maybe they didn't go to the best place. So that definitely took me a long time to figure out. But once I identified that's what was happening with me, I think that changed everything because I was able in the week to give more time to those decisions, like to think about what's happening, to have the conversations with my coworkers or my superiors about what was going on. So then when I came to the weekend, I didn't feel the need to like all of a sudden I need to decompress. And it was one of those things too that I found pretty quickly that I was good at it. Like I was good at being involved in tough situations. I was good at having those tough conversations. A lot of the time people didn't like me. You know, I'm not going to say I was good at it to the point where they loved me because they didn't. But I think it's a really tough um, position to be in because these parents that I was working with, they weren't working with me voluntarily. Um, And I think there's a lot of social work positions that you can work in where people, you know, for therapy, like people are coming to you, they're seeking help, they they need you for something. And what I'm passionate about, they don't want me, they don't need me. I'm the last person that they want in their life. And realizing that and like coming to like not take it personally and being like someone needs to be here and step up because they're never going to want this help. They're never going to like unless I sit here and force these conversations and force them to be uncomfortable, it's never going to happen. This child's life's never going to get better. So I think like taking that like personal burden off and being like at the end of the day, like someone has to be doing this. And they're going to hate me for it. They're going to yell. They're going to scream. But it has to be done. I've been so guilty of, in my past, and, and really in that kind of age of just out of college, of going into these stressful job situations, and you kind of let things build up. And I think for me, it was part a pride thing of not wanting to admit to myself that like, hey, you're in over your head. And there are pressures and stressors and things kind of closing down on you. And being at kind of that younger, tender age, not that I'm some old wise sage uh, (laughs) right now, but that not knowing how to pivot out of those situations and not knowing how to, uh, you know, divert this work stress that I'm feeling onto a relationship. Because I've been there. I was in a, at the same time, I was in a relationship and it was always fighting about something. And and really what it was about was trying to scratch your own itch of trying to feel like you're in control of something or to feel like that you weren't the one that was screwing things up. So I'm just curious how have you been able to or how are you continuing to able to try to fight against you know going back to those kind of old ways or mentalities only because men and women we all myself included will go through these kind of ups and downs and seasons and peaks and valleys of like hey that was really bad what I was doing what I was allowing myself to say the relationship I was allowed to be in and then we kind of get that clarity of the distance of being away from it but it's kind of what I call as that you see a cop on the highway and he's, you know, you're speeding a few miles per hour. So you slam on the brakes and then you're looking in the rear view mirror. And as soon as he's gone, it's like, okay, now I can speed back up again. And that has played out time and time again in my life. And I constantly have to check myself in the mirror every day of like, am I going back to being that man or am I staying to be this better version of myself? So how have you been able to 
make sure or, or continue to work through the process of making sure to not go back to letting those things creep in and, and affect your personal life of the stressors that just naturally your job, regardless of how strong you are as a woman, like you're still day after day going to be put in those stressful situations of these terrible situations with these families. So I think kind of what you said that I've learned to check myself like every week, check myself, make sure what I'm feeling is well, I know with what I'm feeling is valid. And I think it helps to be in such traumatic feel that it is because it allows for me to feel validated in what I feel. I know that it's not normal for most people to go into work and deal with the child who's seven and suicidal. Like I know that that's not common conversations that most people have. And I think when I can just sit there and think back to be like, this was not a normal work week. Like I'm not, I don't have the same job that my friends have that, you know, who, whoever I'm dating has, like I'm allowed to feel this way. And I think I've surrounded myself with people at this point that understand that and that I have a really, really good support system with my family and my friends that that's made all the worlds of difference as well. That like they know that we don't do the same thing and they know that sometimes they need a little more leniency when it comes to my emotions. And I've also learned for myself specifically that talking it out is what is changes everything for me. And I've been able to luckily find people that are interested enough in what I do that they want to hear about it. And I think for a long time, I didn't have that. I didn't have people that wanted to hear about it. So I was just internalizing everything. I didn't have that support. And then once I like realized that there, you know, there's these couple people that like love to hear my stories and love to hear what I did during the week. Like that made such a difference to just like be able to like talk about it and talking about it kind of like what I'm doing now, like in a positive way, like to someone that like wants to hear about it and is interested because they think it's a great thing rather than I spend my weeks talking to people who don't want to talk to me, who don't care what I have to say. So I think that really helps. So that's something that I definitely keep in mind. And like, if I feel myself kind of slipping and I'll like call my friend who I know loves it and I'll be like, Oh, guess what happened? And it really helps. So you said something else that reminded me of another flaw in myself. <laughs> um, and, and I'm just candid. I, if, yeah. you, if people have been listening to the show, they know like this is not the uh, Eric Savage stand the stove box and look at all the cool things I've done. Ted talk. It's like, <laughs> Hey, here's all the things that I've, I've messed up on and I'm Aww. willing to be accountable to that yeah. to, to try to be helpful to someone else. Um, but so you talked about how, you know, you're in these incredibly tragic situations and it's to me, what I took away from what you're saying was either you naturally probably had a little bit of this already in you, but because of your job, you've been able to have this higher threshold for stress, for tragedy, for pain. And I know for me growing up kind of ages like 10 to 22 where there was a lot of tragedy in my life and as I've gotten older now, I've really realized that that threshold both consciously and subconsciously is there, but it's worked against me sometimes in the sense that I've stayed in relationships, jobs, pursued things and people that I shouldn't have because I'm not so scared to run away at the first sign of trouble because this is like I've been through tragedy. I, I understand what potentially can be on the other side of, of sticking with someone or sticking with the company or sticking in this stressful situation because there's so much more fulfillment of when you get on the other side of, man, this was a really shitty situation I was in and look at the beauty of this. So how have you been able, or what's really rather the journey that you have personally been on, uh, Emma, of, hey, I know that I've self-identified now that 
pain, tragedy, loss, difficult situations are not only something that's a part of my, my job, but something that I now have a knack for and I can kind of operate in this chaos very, very well of how do you protect yourself? How do you protect your heart? Um, and, and seeing this as both the biggest blessing and probably the biggest curse of, of your life. Have there been times where you've had to check yourself? Have there been things where you, upon reflecting upon your job or your life that you've now looked at and said, man, like I probably shouldn't have done this, or this is what I would have done differently knowing that I have this knack for jumping in, you know, the ring with some, some people going through some really tough things. Yeah. So that's so interesting because I don't really correlate the two that much, but they are directly correlated. Like my personal life and people that I choose uh, for myself sometimes that are not the best. And I think for me at the end of the day, like I'm a fighter. I want to fight for other people like that. That it, overall is my passion. I want to fight for other people and people that come into my life that I, I think it's that whole like saving thing that I have. And I think a lot of people can relate to that, that, you know, you want to be the one to save someone, but I also don't know when to give that up. Um, and I will stay in something for years and years and years. And at the end of it, when I come out of it, it's like, wow, I was trying to prove this more to myself than anything else. And that's definitely something I have recent, very recently learned. Um, and I'm, I think I have a long way to go with it because I think it is like ingrained in me. I don't think it's something that I'm necessarily ever going to be able to like pick and choose where I, where I care, where I fight. Um, because it's just, I think it's the biggest part of me, but I think knowing what's worth fighting for and what's worth fighting that's going to serve me as well as this other person, rather than what am I, am I fighting for someone that's just going to help them get better? Not, is this going to help us get better or help me get better either? But whew, yeah, that's something I definitely, it is a work in progress for me. And it's something that didn't, I didn't realize I was doing until really recently. But yeah, that's interesting. Have you found that relationships, whether romantic or not, I mean, we can even talk about like best girlfriends or guy friends. Have you found that you get along best with other fighter types or do you need that balance of someone in the polar opposite direction or somewhere in between or a little bit all the above? What if, if, if you had to take the weighted average for like your closest friends or, you know, closest dating relationships or, or whatever you're willing to share, have those people also been equal fighter, passionate, fiery people, or have they been really like chill and mellow or none of those things? I think honestly, it's probably a good 50, 50. I think I like a good balance. I think I like having people in my life that let me feel I can de-stress a little. Like I, I love that like high intensity. Like I love talking about it with people. I love people that are on the same level as me, but I also love people that I can like take a breath and it doesn't have to be this such like high intensity. So I think I definitely, it's probably 50, 50. You have recently moved to Nashville in the middle of a pandemic or I don't know what we call ourselves these mm -hmm. days of just we're still uh, hungover from 2020 because things are still <laughs> happening yeah, and we're still not at, at live music and stuff. But what was it like to, to move in the midst of kind of an era or a season or a, a mentality that so many, all of us have of kind of this staying still or feeling like our life is on pause or feeling like 
we can't do what we want to do. So let's just sit around and watch Netflix and text people or, or whatever. What was it like to, to make this big move in the middle of all that for you? I think I felt for a long time that I was still, I think I spent the past couple of years not feeling fulfilled, um, just like in my personal life. And I think when the opportunity arose, I didn't even think twice. I was like, yes, there's all these things happening, but I'm not happy with where I'm at. And in order to change that, I have to change it. It could blow up. It could be terrible. I, you know, I really had no idea what to expect. I'd only been to Nashville twice before and right only one time was right before I was going to move. I had a friend and I was like, can we just go for like two days just so I can like, <laughs> I just need to see it one more time. Um, but I didn't, I hadn't seen the apartment. I hadn't seen the area I was going to live in. And then just luckily last minute, my best friend and roommate, uh, she had the flexibility and I was like, can you just do this with me? Like, we'll just go, we'll sign a six month lease. Um, and you know, if you hate it, we'll move like, but let's just do it. And very thankful she agreed to it and was like, sure, I'll sign a six month lease. So I think that eased the stress a lot to have someone here to do it with. And I was going to do it without her regardless, but, um, to have her here and like through it because it has been a very weird thing to navigate that I'm just really thankful that she was able to come. And I think that has really helped. Have you found that there's something specifically about Nashville that has helped you to feel grounded or to be fulfilled in your personal life? Or do you feel like you're still on kind of this journey of like, it's still a new city. We're still all, you know, locked down. Like, I don't really know, you know, do you have closure yet on that? Or is this still a, a work in progress to be determined? It's definitely to be determined, but I have felt myself, I felt more myself here in the past two months than I have in a long time. And I think that is getting back to like, really trying to enjoy my life, like doing the little things, like spending time with friends. I think moving here was a big question mark. And I, I feel like I had all those feelings like, is this going to fix it? And I am a big avid person on therapy. I will promote therapy all day long, but I meet with my therapist every week and we talked about the move and, um, she had brought up, you know, like a lot of things that I do are, that I've learned are like, from anxiety, like their anxiety focus. So like I'll do something because I'm anxious about it or because like anxiety is telling me that I need to do it. So we had a lot of conversations of like, I need to be moving to Nashville for me and for like, and like making lists. Like, what do I like about Nashville? Not like, what am I trying to escape or what do I think I'm going to like about Nashville? Like it needed to be very concrete. So I went through that whole process, which I think really helped because when I got here, I felt much more secure in my decision rather than like, I'm just, I need to try to fix what I'm feeling. So let me just move. Like I really tried to give it thought. Well, this has been something that the people that know me, this is something that I've always done. Um, when I was 15, I moved to Australia for a year by myself because I was depressed. I was unhappy. I told my parents, I am moving. I can't be here anymore. <laughs> I mean, I was 15 and I said, this is what I want to do. And I brought this program to them. I said, I want to move here. I need a change. I Something has to give here. I'm not happy. And I was very fortunate that my parents were able to afford me that opportunity. And I did. I moved to Australia for a year, and which also kind of comes full circle because the woman that I lived with in Australia was a social worker. So she's actually what started this whole thing for me was like getting to see her at work. I'd never given social work a thought before. So 
that kind of always has stuck with me too, that like I take these leap of faiths, I take these like adventures and I've been able to look back and see like, I might never have gotten into social work if I hadn't moved to Australia when I was 15, even though that's not what I was not looking to like look for a career then or look for a passion. I mean, I don't know what I was looking for, but I, that was not my intent. And it just kind of like is a reminder to me that it's so worth it every time. So I kind of had that in the back of my mind too. when it came to like moving here in a pandemic, like something's going to come out of it, whether that's like good or bad, it's going to be something that influences me in some way. What do you feel like is the thing or things about social work specifically that draws you in or at the end of the day gives you that uh, fulfillment when your head hits the pillow at night? Is it stepping in in these chaotic situations and feeling like you're being able to make a difference, you know, for these kids? Is it uh, a personal fulfillment of something you, uh, yeah, I don't know, something that happened in, in your life along the way? Like, what is it about social work that feels like is really the true fulfillment for you? Yeah, so I think that, you know, I love my parents' success stories. I love working with addicts who are a year sober and get to reunify with their kids or who are a year sober and finally save up enough money to buy their first apartment. Like, I love all those things, but... For me, the biggest is the kids. (laughs) When I think like of social work, I mean, I think the biggest thing is you're not going to have that many wins. That's just how it is. And I remember when I started in this field, one of a seasoned social work veteran had said to me, don't come into this field thinking you're going to save kids lives because you're not. And like, don't think you're going to come in here and change the world because you're not. And I remember being like, why would she say that to me? Like, what are you talking about? Like, yes, I am. And I was so offended and I was so mad that like someone would say that to me, like while I'm like trying to get into the field. And then I think back to it and I now, hopefully one day when I have people under me, that'll be the first thing I say to them because you don't, you don't like, and, but you have the opportunity to save one. And I think that's what I've learned is I've had these little moments along the way. Like I've had kids that I've gotten to take, you know, 15 year olds that I've gotten to take to eat at restaurants for the first time in their life. You know, I've been able to have these little experiences where I see the, the smile and like the gratitude on a child's face because they've never sat in a restaurant before. And they're so excited to order off a menu. They, you know, they don't even, it is like Disney. I mean, it's Disney world to them. And yet to me, I'm like, I do this almost every night. And it's like those little things that I can see like in these kids, that's like, okay, this isn't a big thing to anyone, but to this kid, this is life changing. Like this is probably their happiest moment so far. And it's those moments that keep me in this field that like keep me just so passionate about it because I want to do that for as many kids as I can. And I always like use the example of like, I could be having a horrible day, have a lot going on in my personal life. You know, I'm just like over it. I'm having a bad day. I've got to go pick up a kid and take him 45 minutes away. I'm annoyed. You know, I've just had a long day. And kids, nine times out of 10, when you pick them up, they want something. They want to go get ice cream. They want to go get McDonald's, something. And I quickly realized as annoyed, as bad as my day was, this child who doesn't know me, they're in a stranger's car. I'm about to drop them off at a stranger's house and they're looking at me saying like, can we please get ice cream? It was like a no brainer. Like, sure, we can go get three ice creams. So it was like being able to do something like as small as that for 
anyone really for this child, like this is going to make their day. This is going to make their week, their month. They're going to remember, you know, she let me get a Sunday rather than just one scoop. Um, so it's like being able to do that for kids and like be that little bit of light in a child's day or a child's week is why I do it. I think that's what pushes me through. And there, there's not a lot of them, but there's been those moments where it like really clicks for me. And I'm like, yep, this is why I'm, this is why I'm doing it. As a young 20 something who is still growing, we're all growing, whether we're 60, 25 or 80, but how are you able to take something that you're so extremely passionate about and not let that be your sole identity? Because, you know, when I think about who Emma Offerman is, is she's not a social worker. She's a fighter. She's someone who's willing to chase her passions. She's someone who's willing to identify, hey, I need a change of scenery. I need to move to a new city. I, I care about myself as a woman enough to put these things ahead. But I think the thing that I'm taking away from listening to you talk is that you're wildly passionate about it. And I think also the biggest challenge for all of us is when we find those passions is how do we not let it consume us to the point where it actually can hurt us, where we kind of put all of our eggs in that basket or allow ourselves to be vulnerable and be set up for potentially disappointment when something happens and you're, you're furloughed, you're fired, you're have had a string of L's. You talked about there's not a lot of wins in social work to now you're like, I don't know where to go because this is where my whole identity has been. So how have you been able to, or still continue to work on not letting social work be the banner for who Emma Offerman is? I don't think I've ever wanted to be known as like the social worker. I think I've never correlated social worker with my identity but kind of like you said like I want to be known for the qualities that I possess that make me a good social worker and I think knowing that like I think separating the two is what helps me is like separating social worker from the qualities and not letting myself be consumed by this social worker title because I mean I have coworkers and we joke all the time about you know just like I don't even know how we sometimes get through the day. I mean, it's just, it does take over your life. And it does. I mean, at one point I was the legal guardian for 30 children. And that went as far as like signing field trip slips to taking them to court. I mean, from literally everything in between you could possibly imagine. That was my responsibility for 30 children. So it's like when you think about that, that's your life. I mean, my my life was these 30 kids. I didn't have time for anything else. But at the same time, I didn't feel like I lost my identity in that. I feel like if anything, it just kind of like brought those characters out more um, in my personal life. But I don't feel in that way like that it it impacted me negatively. I think in, in that sense, it was a positive thing for me because like I was saying before, like it's such a big part of me that if I tried to like down it down or if I tried to not you know, I think there's a lot of people that come across my life that probably don't deserve the compassion and the kindness and the the things that I give them. But I think if I, and I, I've tried, don't get me wrong, I have tried to like not be that, that woman, not be someone that wants to treat everyone like that because I, I can recognize that everyone deserves that. But when I have tried to dumb that down or when I've tried to like not be my fullest authentic self in that way, it just hasn't worked. Like I'm not able to do it. I end up feeling like very anxious and very just like 
eh, like, I don't feel right. This isn't how I, you know, and, and then I second guess. I'm like, I should have, I shouldn't have done that. I should have handled it this way. So I just think I've kind of learned to just go with my gut and go with how I feel and know that sometimes people are going to respond to that in a positive way. Sometimes people are not going to respond to that in a positive way. And just knowing that like, that's who I am and I feel okay if I get lost in it sometimes, but for the most part, I think it helps me stay above water, honestly. I think that there's so much value in learning to not only accept, but love who you are and learning to look at what is the makeup of who you are and what makes you, you know, special. And I think for a lot of us, that sounds super freaking cheesy. Mm -hmm. It sounds really stupid, but it, I know it's something that even I have in the last 12 months as a soon to be 30 year old have had to step into and really realize that the things that I regret most in life were when I was trying to be who I wasn't and I was trying to change who I was or be less of me for someone in a relationship, in a job, in a, in a hobby. And really ultimately at the end of the day is, you know, it sounds selfish, but really it's, it's serving that entity or that person best when you are at yourself. And it's not just like, I need to be able to be my best for me. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a two way street. And so I'm just curious how have you continued to, and you kind of touched on a little bit there at the end, been able to accept who you are, love who you are, feel empowered as who you are, and continue even in the light of, you know, these situations, that these families, these kids you care so much about. And I would imagine there's a temptation sometimes potentially if you're rubbing, you know, elbows and not getting along with these parents or these legal entities to kind of be less of who who you are or who you need to be to that situation how have you been able to stay true to yourself or how are you continually working on trying to always stay true to yourself I don't know if I notice it you know I don't think I notice it on a day-to-day basis but when I can sit there and like reflect it's really am I doing so there's been a period of time in the past year that I haven't been doing what I love to do I the pandemic everything happened I was furloughed i I moved, I lost a big piece of that. And it hasn't been until the last like six months that I realized I'm missing a big piece. I don't love who I am right now. I don't love where I'm at and things like that. But I think it was because I wasn't doing what I was, what I love to be doing. So I think making sure it's something that I've now learned about myself that I need to feel pushed. I need to feel challenged. I need to feel like I have this direct contact and influence on these kids in these people's lives in order for myself to feel good about myself. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but I look at it as more like I don't feel fulfilled or I don't feel like good about myself the way that I want to unless I'm helping others. And I feel like I feel that's how I feel good about myself is if I'm making a difference for someone else, that's only, it's like the way that then I feel good. And there's, I mean, I, you know, I'm happy like on a day-to-day basis, but that, that's like what takes me over the the top of it. Like that's what forces me on that. Like I'm happy to like, I genuinely love my life right now. And I feel like what I'm doing has a purpose. And without that, it was really hard. Do you feel like you're able to get the, encouragement to keep going from other people affirming you or do you feel like that you have a good enough sense of self-awareness on a the field slash situation case 
and yourself to be able to kind of give yourself a grade at the end of the day and feel good enough to not need affirmation or do you need the cards um you know the testimonials to ultimately get that closure to to have that encouragement to keep going i mean i think everybody no matter what job you're in they want the positive feedback they want the validation and so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sit here and say i don't like to be validated on what i do because i definitely do but i think that more than anything else i am confident no one has to say what i'm doing is good i don't have to get a card I know that when I go home at the end of the day, I did something that made a difference and I can be perfectly happy with that. And things too, like I don't necessarily, I've learned, you know, it can be something like a lot of these kids come into foster care with a bag of maybe two shirts, shorts, socks, that's it. And they'll come with a trash bag and they're carrying this trash bag with them, you know, dragging it on the floor from where at place to place. And Something that I would frequently do is get rid of the trash bag, get them a backpack, get them a suitcase, like something like that, I think is just as big for me as getting some sort of thank you note or getting some sort of validation through words. It's just like me doing that action. And like that child, you know, that child's two years old. They have, they don't know the difference between a trash bag and a suitcase at that point. Like they don't, I don't think that they necessarily like, oh, I have this nice suitcase now. Thanks. But I know, like I know that this child's now not lugging around a trash bag of their three items of clothing. And like, for me, that's enough validation to know that I did something enough that day. What do you feel like at a macro level is one of the biggest challenges or problems facing just the social work field as a whole? There's a lot. I have thought about this time and time again of like, what is this? It is a very flawed system. I mean, very flawed. And I've sat and I've thought like, what could I do that would change this? Like what, what's the biggest piece of this? And it really is such a domino effect that I couldn't pinpoint one thing. Like there's so many different things that need to be changed, need to be policies that need to be tweaked. But I really think like public mental health funding is so inadequate. And therefore, I mean, there's not enough social workers for the amount of kids that need it. The pay is terrible. No one goes into social work thinking they're going to be a millionaire. There's just no way. But, you know, I feel like if the pay could be compens- like be better, more people would be interested at least. Um, and I really think that if more people were interested and like they had more incentive, like something like pay, because I've been fortunate enough, like, you know, I don't have a family to support right now. I've been able to do this job. I'm fortunate to come from a family that I know I'm not going to go hungry. I know that I'm going to be supported and provided for. And a lot of people don't have that. They don't have that blanket to fall on. So they can't really get into a field that they're like, yeah, I'm doing something great for society and for kids, but I can't feed my own kids at night because I don't make enough money. And like, I think that is such an issue because I think there are so many amazing people out there that would do an amazing job at this and be amazing role models for kids, but they can't live off the salary. Um, and if there was more funding, you know, they're just these kids too, that come into care have so much trauma, like such deeply rooted trauma that there's not enough mental health facilities to adequately give them the care. I mean, I've had kids come into care that need to be in therapy that need the highest level of therapy, but there's a wait list for three months. And then that child is sitting through the system for three, six months sometimes without a single therapist talking to them, 
none of their trauma is being addressed. And then it just starts spiraling. I mean, it's like it needs to be addressed day one. And so I, I think funding really funding would, would help some things. I think there's a lot of other stuff, but at least funding could help. Is this all funded at the federal level or is it a state level? And then part B, is there another state or country that is kind of the perfect world? This is where we're all aiming for, or is this truly like a global crisis? So I'm honestly not a hundred. I think it depends on like the agency, if it's federal or, or government, like I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but I also know too, this is definitely a global issue. I don't think, I mean, I think the U S struggles with it probably a lot more than other countries because of the systematic issues that we have in place and because of our huge class differentiations. And I was actually talking to someone, um, I just started my master's in social work this week and I was talking to a classmate of mine today and he's from Brazil. And he was talking about how in Brazil, they don't have these like class differentiations. Like everyone pretty much has the same opportunity, like pretty much. So he was saying when he came to the States, it was like so shocking that like some of these kids are like in different worlds than some of these other kids. And that really had me thinking too, like that's such an issue, like that, that, that doesn't exist sometimes. That's not as predominant in other countries, but yet here it's like one of the most forefront things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis with these kids is like, they don't have the same access to resources. They don't, you know, they can't get the same educations and things like that. So How do you protect your own passions, motivations, and heart towards continually being inspired to show up every day when you're just one, you know, amazing, passionate, fighting woman in a sea of a a global, you know, you said issue, or particularly the U.S. does this really poorly, or there's a huge need, rather, in the U.S. more than ever before. So how are you able to not be overwhelmed by kind of this feeling of this, like, big tidal wave of, like, I'm just one woman fighting, you know, a, a massive issue. How are you able to stay motivated or, or passionate about it and not, you know, feel like you're just constantly hitting up against a wall that you'll never be able to get over? I think I've felt that wall plenty of times. I think there are so many times that I call my boss sobbing, saying, I'm not coming in tomorrow. I'm done. I'm not coming in. You can pick up my badge. Like, I mean, literally word for word, like, see ya. Never. You will never see me again. And every time and say like, okay, Emma, like just get a good night's sleep and call me in the morning. Every time. And I would be so sure that night, like, no, I'm done. I can't because I am only one person. And there is so much that is being asked of me. And like, I feel the weight of my world on my shoulders because these kids are depending on me. Like I'm their best shot. I can't do it for all of them. Like it just becomes this very overwhelming feeling. But every morning when I would wake up, I was like, let's go. I didn't, it was literally like, I just needed that reset. I needed those eight hours of sleep. And then I was good. And I would always be like, yeah, you know, I I called you. I was upset, but like, I'm fine. Like, we're good. I'm going to go pick up my kid. And I think that all came down to really, like, I think I remember like the times that I feel burnt out, the times that I feel like I can't do it anymore, that I have these kids that are waiting. Like I have these kids that if I don't show up, no one's showing up right now. And I'd love to say that everyone in this field is in the field for the right reasons or everyone shares the same passions, but I've had experiences with people that I wouldn't want taking over my kid. I wouldn't want taking over my cases. I'm, I don't say that there's tons of great social workers. I like great, great, great. 
But in any job, you have the bad apples, you have the people that aren't doing it the way that it should be done to the level that should be done. And I think that is always a reminder of me of like, I know I can do this the right way. I know that I can do this for these kids. So if I can do it, I'm going to do it. And yeah, I feel a little tired. This actually, this is a story that I definitely wanted to share with you today because this moment, I think for me is one of the most defining in what motivates me. And like when I am feeling burnt out, like just kind of puts everything into perspective for me. And it was a time that um, we were on call. So like being on call, I mean, typically I was working 60 hour weeks and with on call, you're working like probably 75 hour weeks and that was staying um if a child came into care we would take shifts sleeping with them overnight in the office which is a whole nother issue that these kids sometimes don't have places to go and sleep so they literally sleep on an office chair we had a couple cots they'd sleep on the cots but I mean it's no place sometimes these children were six seven years old um and were just stripped of everything they knew and now they're sitting in an office um to sleep so It was like an on-call week. I'm tired. I'm just exhausted. We were on call and we had a teen who needed to be driven like 45 minutes away. And my coworker had had enough. She was burnt out for the day. She'd been with this teen for like six hours. And she was like, someone's got to come take over. And I was like, okay, like I'll come. So I came and like, it's probably 10 p.m. at this point. I mean, I go to bed at like nine. So I'm already just like, this is so annoying. I don't want to have to drive 45 minutes away. Just complaining about everything I could complain about. And I pull up and the teen, she's, you know, she's very angry. She's running her mouth. She's pissed off. She doesn't want to go where we have to take her. She wants to go somewhere else. We tell her she can't go there. She has to go to this place. So she's already really mad. And then um, we tell her, you know, you need to go get your stuff out of that car and put it into my car. And She walked to the back of the car and my coworker and I like exchanged, definitely like rolled our eyes and we're just like both just like, oh, she's so annoying. Like, you know, you think about a teenager in a quote unquote normal life, angsty enough, like got a big enough attitude. Teenagers are enough as it is. Then you're going to put a teenager through foster care for years, through so much trauma. I mean, it's like times a thousand. So... And that's how she was. I mean, she was just like the angriest teenager you could imagine. And she had a lot to be angry about. But uh, we exchanged like an eye roll. And I think one of us was just like, like, I just want to go home. And I did not know that the teenager could see us or hear us at that point. So she came right around to my side of the car and was like, y'all need to like drop the fucking attitude. And she was like, I do not care that you're pissed off right now. And she was like, because guess what? You have a home to go home to. You have a bed. You have a family. She's like, you're going to drop me off? And then what? You're going to go home to your boyfriend? Like, I'm so sorry. And she said, you know, this is my life. She said, I live this every day. You guys come and pick me up at 10 p.m. I want to go to sleep. You're trying to tell me to go somewhere else. So I have to take my five clothing items and my blanket and put it in some other stranger's car she was like I'm pissed off and she was like I have every right to be pissed off because you get to go home tonight you're gonna drive me and then you go home I don't go home and it was like that moment for me was like wow like her saying I live this every single day you don't 
Like you're doing this, you're on call this week. So get through the week and then you can go back to your normal life. Like to me was so eye-opening to be like, wow, like that's why I'm doing this. And I lost sight of it for that moment because it's easy to lose sight of. I mean, it's like you're working a 65, 70 hour week. You don't want to have to get out of bed at 10 p.m. to go drive 45 minutes. But it was just that has stuck with me more than anything else in this job or in this field to be like, this is at the end of the day, this is my job. I could quit at any point and go live a very normal life. I could quit and go do something that doesn't involve any of this. She doesn't have that. She can't quit. This is her life. She lives this every day, day in and day out. And to have then the people coming to like help her or to then like roll their eyes or have an attitude was like a check in place for me. It was just like, uh, uh-uh, like get it together. And really from that moment on, I've been so careful with if I'm having a bad day or like it just really puts in everything into perspective for me. Like I can be having the worst day and then I actually look forward to like going to pick someone up at 10 p.m. Because I'm like, okay, I have 45 minutes to to put their favorite music on in the car to like, like I was saying before, like go get them an ice cream, like give them something to be happy about. And then that would make my day better in result. How are you able to not always feel like you're this ticking time bomb bottled up where, you know, you've now you've had this experience to where, you know, in your mind mentally, you're like, you can probably catch yourself going that way. You're like, Hey, no bounce back. Hey, put on their favorite music. Hey, whatever. How are you able though, to not always feel like this chameleon and let all these things kind of feel like you have to be the perfect social worker, you know, for these people and not let that spill over and just collapse you as a person. Once you get away from it, is it, did you already answer it when you talked about, you know, sharing with people or are there other ways that you're able to decompress or stress, uh, from that? Because unfortunately as much as you, uh, are are an amazing person amazing woman very motivated and passionate you know you're not wonder woman you mm. you are human yeah. you, you are vulnerable to feeling overwhelmed and 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 real emotions and in real life so how do you take that on one these kids and these parents see right through you i mean if i'm trying to be someone i'm not or hold it together more than i am they see right through it and not and like it's not good so i really learned it's so much better for me to not be perfect. And like I built such strong relationships with these kids by being myself, like talking to them how I would talk to you. Like I don't put on any sort of social worker like personality or like the way that I talk. I mean, I cuss. I I mean, I don't hold back how I talk to these kids. They're pissing me off. I say, you're pissing me off. Like you need to stop. Like I talk to them like an adult in their normal, you know, if they were living in a family setting kind of would speak to them. And I learned so quickly that that gained me respect. And it was it's hard too. I mean, I'm a young 20-year-old white girl in this field and it's not something that a lot of especially teenagers have a lot of respect for. They look at me and they're like, "You think you're going to tell me what to do?" Yeah, okay. Could care less. I mean, they're kids that come from gang violence, from these things that, of course, I'm walking in and they're like, who are you? Like, I'm not scared of you. They have grown up with this violence and this abuse that, you know, they see the social worker. So I really learned that, like, me trying to put on a different persona to, like, be professional or be this certain type of way within the job 
was not going to work. And it's really worked out for me to not do that. And I, I've had instances where, I mean, I've had teenagers, you know, threatened that they were going to like, you know, punch, like punch me, you know, like come right in my face. And I'll look at them and I'll be like, throw a punch. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Like, you see me, you see you, like you punch me, I probably pass out. And like, I'm not going to hit you back. Like, if I even tried to hit you back, it's not going to hurt. So like, do what you need to do. And like, I think that, and then that always, I mean, there's multiple times that that kind of conversation occurred where it was like, if you want to hit me, go ahead and hit me. But it's not gonna make you feel better. Cause I'm just, I'm little, like, it's not gonna help you. And nine times out of 10, they would start like laughing and be like, yeah, you're right. Like, what am I doing? And it just really like helped. So I think that is a big thing is just like knowing that I'm who I am outside of this job. And I also am that same person in the job. And then I don't like lose sight of who Emma is because I don't try to change it or tweak it. And I mean, there's definitely times that I'm like more professional than others, like when I go to court and like things like that. But the way that I talk to clients versus the way that I talk to my friends doesn't change. And I'm very upfront with parents and adults like that as well, because I think the other side of it is I've had a parent, you know, look at me and say like, are you in fucking high school? Like you're, you're who is in charge of my child. Like you don't have a, like you don't have kids. Like you can't be more than like, I've had someone be like, you are 20 years old. Like, and I'm like, all right, I'm not 20. Like you're close, but like, we're not I'm a little older, but it's just kind of like making light. And like, there's a lot of doubt. I think when people see me to be like, you can't be the one that's taking care of my kid. Like they think they're way more qualified and they have, you know, they're the parent. They have every right to feel that way. But it was just like being upfront and honest to be like, yeah, I don't have kids, but I'm not the one in the situation. Like me not having kids isn't going to help your kids. Like it's not going to help you in this situation at all. Um, or like my age doesn't mean that I'm not capable of doing this. So I think it was just really learning that just to be authentic and who I am, regardless of who I was talking to, regardless of the population that it really, it helped. I know that so many people are going to be impacted by your episode today and feel because I, I feel it here just sitting here of like, I want to jump in. I want to help. Like, this is such a big issue that obviously I think we all know the term social worker or foster care, things like that, just because of even just the media of movies. You know, there's been storylines built around it or stuff like that. But how can like the everyday person get involved with helping you and others do more is there donations to agencies is it as simple as like finding those social workers that we're friends with or in our kind of like friend of a friend and like supporting them encouraging them like what are some ways that we can hopefully you'll be able to share we can remove this barrier between i i hear this need i hear how passionate she is i hear these stories how can i help I think there's little ways to help. I think and then there's the bigger ways. And I think to start with the littler ways, like every every agency in anyone's area is going to be looking for donations, um, specifically like clothing, because you think about these kids, um, they're coming in. Sometimes they literally only own a pair of shorts or shirt. They've been living in cars. They've been, they're filthy. They need clothes. Um, and, you know, I think too, people often don't think about these they're kids like especially like sometimes the teenagers but they're kids and I know things are a little different right now with the pandemic and someone people aren't really going to school as much but like you know 
these kids, there's closets and things at these donation centers, but they're like, these kids are, they don't want to wear these clothes that like they wouldn't normally wear. They want, you know, the packs unsure or like, and people don't realize the impact that like these hand-me-downs that their child maybe is never going to wear again. It's going to sit in the closet, but it's a nice pair of Nike sneakers that don't fit their kid anymore. But this child in foster care to have this pair of Nikes rather than maybe this like, you know, really two, $2 pair of shoes. And it's like not, I mean, the, the price isn't important, but what I guess my point is like that kind of thing means so much to a child because it helps them feel normal. It helps them feel like they're not an outcast. They can go into school and feel like, Oh, like I look good. Like rather than like I'm wearing these clothes that these strangers gave me and I don't even feel like myself. So I think, you know, that kind of donation is amazing. Like people can, you know, donate hand-me-downs of those more like name brand clothes. Um, that is huge for kids. And I've seen the kids like open these things up and it is like life-changing that they get to wear these clothes now. Um, and I think the other thing too is um, on a bigger scale, like, and I know like me and you were like at a younger age, but like fostering. Um, I think when you get to an age where you feel like you can foster, I think that is one of the most amazing things you can do. And it is so, so needed. And there's all different types of fostering you can do. I mean, you can be a respite foster care, which is basically a foster home that is like 24 to 48 hours. And it's just until that child can be placed somewhere more permanently. So it's a very quick turnaround. It's not like you're having a child in your home for years. Um, but it's just as important as those families that open their doors for years and years for these children. Because like I was saying before, there's not enough foster homes. And when there's not enough foster homes, these kids go to offices. They sleep on chairs. They sleep. I mean, we don't have facilities designed to keep these kids. Like that's what the foster care system is for. And it's just there's not enough foster homes for all the kids that come into care. And I think if more people consider fostering, they would see like it's not only life-changing for the child but I think it can change a family's life for like and just do amazing things that's amazing I have learned so much about um, this issue and and you today and I think my favorite thing about you is your willingness to pursue something that you're so passionate about um, when it feels like the odds are against you as far as being able to make these long-term impacts and, and have the empowerment from, you know, all the parents involved and having all the funding you need. And so I just respect and admire you so Thank much you. for your just relentless commitment to being you, to being this fighter, to being this uh, woman that's so passionate and, and willing to pursue the the road less traveled of, of being a social worker. And I, I think that we all need to, I need to do a better job of, not just looking at what's kind of the issue or the flavor of the moment of this year, this month, uh, this city, but how can I be more aware and look at truly things that are in grave need and and donate sweatshirts? And it's not just go to Goodwill, but it, and not that Goodwill is bad, but thinking about where is the greatest need for this this thing, this little thing that I have that I can give. So I'm just thrilled to release this episode. Um, it's coming out. Well, if you're listening to it, today is Friday, and I hope that uh, you can go into this weekend, everyone listening, uh, with a fresh new insight on 
just another thing that we need to be be a part of and, and empower amazing women like Emma to continue to give her a voice and give her the space and encourage her when she does post things on social media <laughs> and to not just go by, but to like that. So the last question I will ask you and every single guest gets the same question is you're on the No More Zero Days podcast and a zero day is where you get nothing done towards your goal or dream, be it you are pursuing a degree in social work, be it that you want to find a guy or gal to get in a relationship with, be it that you're trying to lose a few pounds, whatever it is your goal is, that zero day is getting nothing done. And this mentality of the zero day mentality came from my own failure to either be living in a zero day where I was going to Taco Bell twice, I was watching reruns of The Office all day, I hadn't showered, I didn't work out, or it was in a hundred day where I got up at 5 a.m., listened to three hours of Gary Vee, sent a thousand emails, worked out twice that day, you know, had my vegan smoothie, whatever. And I just truly believe that there's so many of us, because myself included at one point, was in that either to Today, we get nothing done or tomorrow it's just the perfect day but if we actually live somewhere between that zero and 100 on that one to 99 that you know today is Wednesday today is a five but tomorrow could be a 75 and then a 25 the next day is we all have these little wins and when we look back we can actually see that there was kind of the snowball effect of having this contagious of today might not be the perfect day but at least I got something done towards that goal and we look back at the course of a day, a month, a week, a quarter, a year, it's like, wow, I actually moved the ball forward. Because the problem with zero days is it actually works against us. And we think of the, we can just easily pick things back up tomorrow. But actually, I truly believe that a zero day is, is pushing us in the other direction. So my long-winded rambly setup for this for you is what advice would you give to someone who is stuck in that zero day mentality? And however you want to answer this, a personal story, another um, POV from the social work perspective, what advice could you give to this person or even a younger version of yourself of helping to get out of being stuck in that zero day mentality of being afraid to pursue that thing today or to falsely believe that, hey, I can just do whatever today, but then tomorrow I can turn it on and get that time back. So I know I know exactly the kind of days you're talking about. Um, but I think like when I hear all that, it kind of like goes hand in hand, I think, with my social work mentality. But um you know, I think everyone's going to have those days where they don't feel like doing anything. They don't want to get out of bed. They don't want to do what needs to be done. They look at their to-do list and it's just like too much. Even if there's two things on that to-do list that day, it's just too much to do that day. And I think in those days, rather than like having the mindset of I need to do this today because it's on this checklist or like, it's almost like that self-centered approach to things like self-serving like okay I'm gonna feel better about myself because I'm gonna check this off my list like it's really that like at least for me it's like a to-do like check 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 I think having the mindset of when you're in those days you don't feel like doing anything for you try to just do something for someone else like when I hear that I think okay I don't have to go grocery shopping like I need to or I don't have to go send all these emails that need to be sent but I want to go pick up, like you said, like I want to go pick up McDonald's because I feel like having a milkshake or a McFlurry. So maybe you go have a McFlurry, but when you grab the McFlurry while you're there, you get a $2 Big Mac or off the dollar menu and you give it to the homeless person that's sitting there. And like for me that, then you did something that day. 
even though all you did was go to McDonald's and go get what you wanted because you didn't feel like eating the healthy stuff that's in your fridge or, you know, and then I, I know like I buy so many vegetables and then I just, at the end of the week, I feel so guilty because they're all still sitting there because all I did was eat junk food all week. But then at least like when you look back and it's like that zero day of like, you didn't do anything, you went to get McDonald's, you can think like, yeah, I got McDonald's, but I also like, you know, gave this burger to this guy who needed it or to this, you know, whoever needed it at that moment. So I think that when I heard that, that would be my advice is like, do it, do what you need to do, but try to find a way to like help someone else while you're doing it. And then that way you can look back at that day and it's not a zero day anymore.